Uh, my study of this topic that we're going to cover tonight has served as a great reminder for me. It really has. It's, it was a refresher to my heart. It's, it's fanned into flame my love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I teach tonight, I trust that it will do the same for you, this topic. Tonight is special because we get to turn our attention to a different aspect of Jesus' life. We've been studying Christology, right? The person and work of Christ. Uh, and we won't turn our focus from Jesus because he is especially our subject for this semester. Uh, but like I said, tonight we'll turn our attention to a different aspect of his life. Uh, thus far, we have been focusing on the person of Christ, which is the nature of who he is. A tanner spoke on the preeminence of Christ out of Colossians chapter 1. You guys remember that? And he spoke on the kenosis of Christ out of Philippians 2. Who remembers what that meant? <laughs> Christ's humanity. And last week, we discussed the hatred of Christ out of John chapter 15. And a while back, Matt wonderfully exposed us to the pre-incarnation, the pre-existence of Christ. And a couple weeks back, he took us to John chapter 5 and taught us about the deity of Christ. Uh, the person of Jesus has been the emphasis thus far. And tonight, we're going to turn our attention to the for the very first time to the work of Christ. And as we turn our attention to the work of Christ for the next three weeks, it's important that you don't let your mind lose sight of who Jesus is. See, the person and work of Christ are really, in a sense, inseparable. Uh, the reason that the work of Christ is significant is because of who he is. It's because of his nature or his person, and vice versa. Because we understand the person of Christ, that gives significance and value to his work. Because he's the God-man, because he's preeminent and existed before the foundations of the world, those facts demand that we pay careful attention to his works. And so the specific work of Christ that we're going to focus on tonight as stated at the top of your notes, if you have your notes, is the atonement. And when I say the word atonement, in order for us to simply define it, or, or in order for us to simplify what that is or what that means in our minds, it, it might be helpful for you to think of the cross. I thought about this for a while. I sat around thinking about how to accurately or simply define this work of Christ for you, and I kept ending up back at the cross. And the reason that is, is because the cross of Christ, in a sense, sums up the atonement. When we talk about Christ's atonement, we're talking about the, the fact that Christ, 2,000 years ago, was nailed to a tree as he took on the wrath of God for you and I. We're talking about the fact that Christ has sacrificed his life for the sake of men. When we talk about the atonement, we're talking about the fact that Jesus so very long ago made a payment for the sins of men in order that men could be reconciled to God, in order that men could be saved. That's the atonement, ladies and gentlemen. It's not difficult to explain. It's rather simple. But listen to this. Its ramifications are eternal. See, though the atonement of Christ is really simplistic, if I sat up here and simply deemed its implications as profound, that in my mind would be borderline blasphemous. To understand what it means is easily possible, yet to pay respect to what it has accomplished is in no way possible. It's unfathomable. The effects of the atonement of Christ are incomprehensible. 
This work of Jesus ought to cause us to be speechless. Words couldn't do it justice. The work of Christ ought to cause us to fall on our face and thank God a thousand times, or rather, 10,000 times. Well, with all that being said, let's open up our Bibles and consider this work of Jesus. Isaiah, in his well-known and well-visited chapter, wonderfully explains the atonement of Christ in just four verses. So turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is sort of located right in the middle of your Bible. We were here last week as we talk about the hatred and the rejection of Christ, and we're back again to Isaiah 53 to talk about the atonement of Christ. This, of course, is the chapter where Isaiah is foretelling of the coming Messiah and what type of life he was to live and what he was to do on behalf of men or what he was to do for men. And we're going to be reading verses 3 through 7. And as we do so, I really want you to listen carefully for what Isaiah tells us Jesus has done for us, starting in verse 3. He says, he was despised and rejected by men. We talked about that last week. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah tells us that he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows in verse 4. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And he was chastised for our peace, verse 5. He bore our iniquity, verse 6. He was afflicted for our sake, oppressed on our behalf. He was slaughtered in our place, verse 7. This great atonement is also mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Do you notice how many times or what Isaiah said Jesus did for us? I hope that those things never get old to you. That was my prayer for myself, that those truths would never become old to me. John the Baptist twice in John chapter 1 drew his disciples' attention to Jesus as he was coming towards him to be baptized. You remember what he said. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sins of the world. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 calls Jesus our Passover Lamb. That is, because of his blood, God has passed over us and spared us from his wrath. The angel in Matthew chapter 1 told Joseph and Mary what to name their child. He was to be called Jesus, and for what reason? The angel said, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. Did you know that? To save. To save. 
John, in the book of Revelation, describes for us what the four living creatures did after Jesus had took the scroll. It says this, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. The atonement is mentioned all throughout Scripture. And you know, the subject of the atonement, though it's spoken of often in regard to Christ, it actually didn't begin with Jesus. The Old Testament speaks quite a bit of the sacrifices being made in behalf of men. You guys know this. And so what I actually want to do now is I want to draw your attention to a couple of Old Testament passages that I believe are extremely helpful in terms of understanding what an atonement is. And these passages in the Old Testament that we go to actually help draw our attention to the atonement to Christ, the atonement of Christ. So turn with me uh, to Genesis 22. It's the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 22. And here, if you guys remember, we have the earliest and most notable sacrifice or atonement made. Uh, This chapter contains the story of Abraham being instructed by God to offer up his only son, to kill his one and only son who he had waited 25 years for, Isaac. God had instructed Abraham to do so, to slaughter his son in order to test his faith. And right when Abraham was going to strike his son, the text says to slaughter his son, God stopped him and spared his son. We pick up the story in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not Lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For for now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. What a story. What an intense story. The story ended by Abraham telling us that God, or Abraham calling the place where he was about to sacrifice his son, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. He says that in verse 14. The Lord provided for him that day. And what did the Lord provide, ladies and gentlemen? Why did he name that place, that. Well, God provided an atonement for his son. He provided a sacrifice on behalf of Isaac. Look back at verse 13. It says, right when he was about to, right when he was about to slaughter his son and he was stopped by God, it says, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God spared Abraham's son and he took a sacrifice instead. 
Instead of Isaac dying, the ram died. Instead of Isaac's blood being shed, the ram's blood was shed. Instead of Isaac losing his life, the ram lost its life. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what the atonement is. Someone or something is sacrificed and the other party is spared. Let's turn to another passage. Flip over to the right, Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And here you have the story of the Passover. God was in the final process of delivering his people, Israel, from their 400-year captivity to the Egyptians. Before Exodus 12, God had been unleashing his wrath upon the land of Egypt with different types of plagues, and he was sending his final and most devastating plague upon the people, which was going to be the striking of all the firstborn children in the land. There was going to be a great cry all throughout Egypt like never before after this plague from God. And what we have recorded here in Exodus chapter 12 is God informing Israel how they were to be saved from this plague or from this judgment that was coming upon their land. Read verse 3, chapter 12. Tell the congregation of Israel, this is God speaking to Moses, tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. The people were to take a lamb that was spotless or without blemish, according to verse 5. And what were they to do with this lamb? What were they to do with it? Verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. They were to kill the lambs. They were to slaughter the lambs. For what reason? Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they ate it. They were to spread it all over their doorposts. And verse 12 tells us why. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Verse 13. The blood, that is the blood of the lamb that was slaughtered, the blood of the lamb that was spread on the door, doorposts, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This blood from the slaughtered lamb on the doorpost was the way in which God knew to pass over their homes and to spare their firstborn children. The death of the lamb is what brought about their salvation. Can you see it? The blood of the spotless creature is what caused them to be delivered from God's wrath. This is a wonderful story of God's salvation. And it's a wonderful illustration of the atonement. It's a wonderful story of a sacrifice being made to bring about salvation. Let's look at one more passage in the Old Testament. Turn over with me one more book to the right. Leviticus chapter 4. Here God instructs his people of what to do when they were to sin against him. These were the laws for the sin offerings. 
And similar to what we saw in Exodus 12, uh, when the people sinned, they were to offer up sacrifices continually on behalf of their sins. Look at verse 27 of chapter 4. If anyone of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hands on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. Here we see another commandment from God to shed the blood of a spotless animal. And for what reason? Well, again, it was to serve as an atonement for their sin. The lamb's life was sacrificed in order that the people's sin would be pardoned by God, in order that they would be spared. Read verse 31. In all its fat he shall remove, that is the priest, and the fat is removed from the peace offerings, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. God's wrath was to be appeased by the sacrifice offered to him. He accepted the atonement that the people offered for their sins, and he was going to spare their lives. This was the way in which God operated all throughout the Old Testament, far before Christ had been born. When sins were committed, blood was shed. When sins were committed, lives were taken. There were sacrifices after sacrifices being made throughout the Old Testament. There were animals after animals being slaughtered. And this was all so that the people could be spared. That their lives could go on. But this was in no way the way in which God was going to continue to operate. We know that. The blood of bulls and goats were not going to continue to serve as a pleasing aroma to God. Hebrews 10 actually tells us that. So turn to the New Testament with me. Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll read verses 1 through 7. We'll start in verse 1. The author writes, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law being spoken of here is the Mosaic law or the Levitical law. The author tells his audience that those laws that were given by God were just a foreshadow. They were a means to an end. They were a picture of what was to come. The Levitical sacrifices given by God were never intended to bring about eternal salvation, ladies and gentlemen. They were inadequate to do so. Verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, that is the Old Testament, the Levitical sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those sacrifices which we just read about back in Leviticus chapter 4, 
couldn't completely cleanse anyone from their sin. They couldn't eternally save souls. They weren't worthy sacrifices for such an accomplishment. And that's why Christ came, ladies and gentlemen. That's why Christ came. Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings, in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Jesus speaking to God, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Christ was the only worthy sacrifice. He was the only one who could serve as a worthy offering to the Father if men were to be saved. The author sums up his point. Skip down to verse 11. He says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. With one offer, with one sacrifice, with one death, he's perfected the saints. By walking this earth as a man and dying once, he has accomplished that which was impossible for the law to accomplish, ladies and gentlemen. Has your ears become dull to this fact? Have you tuned me out already? I sure hope not. Such rich truths. And so thus far, we've basically defined and defended the atonement of Christ. We've mentioned and, look at, and looked at New Testament passages, and we examined the Old Testament passages, and to sum it up, the atonement of Christ is the payment that he has made for the sins of men in order to save them. I'll say that again. It is the payment that Christ has made on the cross, on the cross, for the sins of man in order to save them. And so now that we have a clear understanding of what the atonement is, I want to talk about two aspects in regard to Christ's atonement. The first is the fact that Christ had to pay for our sins, the fact that he had to die. And the second is the fact that this payment that was made by Christ has reconciled us to God. Again, I'll say it. The first is the, pay is the fact that a payment had to be made, and the second is the result of that payment. And so first, let's talk about why Christ had to pay for our sins. And at the heart of this issue, ladies and gentlemen, is the character of God, and namely his justice. See, when laws are broken, when God is rebelled against, punishment is required. With God, justice is non-negotiable. Deuteronomy 32.4 says this, The rock, his works is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. He's just. See, God must act according to his nature. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 tells us that he, he can't deny himself. He, he can't do things that are contrary to his nature. Therefore, when sin is committed, 
It demands that he respond. It demands that. I love the way A.W. Tozer puts it in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. If you ever want to be humbled, <laughs> if you ever want to be humbled about, by how much you don't know and by how, I don't know how to say this, how your vocabulary isn't rich, <laughs> read A.W. Tozer. You guys know what I'm talking about, don't you? So try to really focus as I read this quote, okay? It's meaty. Tozer writes concerning the justice of God. He says, justice embodies the, ideal, the idea of moral equity. And, in, and iniquity is the exact opposite. It is in equity, the absence of equality from human thoughts and acts. Judgment is the application of equity to moral situations, and they may be favorable or unfavorable according to whether the one under examination has been equitable or inequitable in the heart and conduct. Did you guys get that? <laughs> Toes are spot on, though, even if you didn't get it. And what he's saying is this. God, by nature, is just. God, by nature, is just. That's what he was saying. And he must render his anger or his wrath upon the sins of men. He must. God told Adam and Eve that, they, that when they rebelled against him in the garden, they were going to die. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Proverbs 11, verse 9, truly the righteous attain life, but whoever pursues evil finds death. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4 reads, Behold, all souls are mine. The souls of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Ezekiel Chapter 18, verse 13, speaking of the person who commits abominations or sins, he shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. Ezekiel 18, verse 20 says, the soul who sins shall die. You get the point? I'll keep going. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 24 reads, but when a righteous person turns away from, his, from right, his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. For them he shall die. You know, it makes, you, it makes me wonder if the Apostle Paul wasn't reading Ezekiel chapter 18 when he was writing part of the book of Romans. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Or the compensation or the payment for sin is death. Do you understand that? When a person rebels against God, he will die. If a person refuses to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will burn in hell. Do you understand that? It's not a joke. It's crystal clear in both the Old and New Testament that because of the justice of God, the sin must be paid for. And indeed, Christ paid for it all. Amen? 
He paid for the sins of men with his life through his shed blood. This was the only option if God were to save men and to maintain his character and to maintain his justice. Christ had to die. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 3, so turn there with me. You should be in Hebrews. Flip back to Romans chapter 3. Remember, the point in which we're trying to get at is that a payment had to be made for our sins because God is just. Romans chapter 3. Starting in verse 23, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says, though all, though all have sinned, and he's belabored this point for three chapters and deserve death, though all have sinned and deserve death, there's a way to be saved. And that way is through God's great gift to man, his son Jesus Christ. Verse 25, the first half of it, he says, Whom God, that is Jesus, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is extremely important, ladies and gentlemen. What this verse is saying is that God offered up his son to be an appeasement through shedding his blood, through killing him. Christ's death is what allows for us to be saved. But look at what the next sentence says. Not only did Christ have to die in order for us to be saved, but there was another purpose for it. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over sins. It was to show, Paul says again, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Christ's death demonstrated that God is a God of righteousness. His death had to occur to prove that God was just. See, God had chosen to forgive individuals for their sin. He had chosen to pass over people's sins. But how was he to do so in a justifiable manner? How was he to just pass over sins? How was he to Remain the God of Ezekiel 18 and the God of Romans chapter 6, that is the God who dishes out death when men sin. How? Through Christ. Through Christ's payment. He had to kill his son. He had to offer up his son. And so now that we've belabored the fact that Christ had to pay for our sins, let's turn our attention to the second aspect of the atonement that I want to talk about. And that's the fact that Christ's sacrifice has indeed brought about our salvation. And we've already made note of this. And certain passages that we looked at have already spoken to this fact. But we never can talk about this enough. Amen? We never can talk about enough that, that Christ sacrificed has brought about our salvation. Oh, it's my prayer that I never, that my ears never become dull. Have you heard that too much? Christ died for your sins? Have you heard it too much? Woe to you who has. Woe to you. You know, the greatest question ever posed in the history of man had to do with this point. 
And this question was this, how can a sinful man be saved? Or how can a man be reconciled to God? Job asked that, or his, one of his friends asked that. And ladies and gentlemen, this age-old question has been answered. How can man be saved? The answer is found in the cross. The answer is found in what we're turning our attention to tonight, the atonement. Through Christ's perfect life, through his suffering, through his taking on the wrath of God, we've been reconciled to God. I want to turn your attention to just one passage of Scripture concerning this issue. Turn to Romans chapter 5. We're in Romans 3. Turn to Romans chapter 5. We read part of this in our call to worship. This is a wonderful text. Paul here explains how men have been reconciled or have come to peace with God, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, that is brought to a right relationship with God by the death of his son, much more now that we, have, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen? Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, here it is. The war is over. Do you understand the significance of this? I keep asking that question because I got to remind my own heart. The war is over. Man has been brought back into a right relationship with his creator. Man's biggest issue in life, which is his enmity with God, has been resolved. And how so? Well, we know the answer to that. Paul makes it clear here. Verse 1, through Jesus Christ. Verse 2, because of him. Verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10, through the death of Christ. Verse 9, through the slaughtering of the Christ through his shed blood, by him, through him, because of him, we're saved. You know, I wonder if there are any before us here who are still at war with God. Are there any before us tonight who have not bowed the knee to Christ? Are there any before us here tonight who have grown up in the church? I know there are many of you here tonight who have grown up in Grace Bible Church or another Bible teaching church who've played Christian for their whole life 
and yet they have refused to submit their lives? Are there any before us here who are faking it, who are playing the game of look-alike on the outside, and yet they are still at war with God in their heart? Are there any before us tonight who have tried to find hope and satisfaction in their jobs or in their family or in their girlfriend or or boyfriend? I hope for you, I hope and pray tonight that you will be reconciled to God. And so we have defined and defended the atonement of Christ. We've discussed that Christ had to die for our sin if we were to be saved, and we have talked about the results of that atonement. And so now I want to talk about how we as believers apply this doctrine to our lives. And something that might help us apply this truth to our lives is simply posing a question. And that question is this, why did God save us? Why did God save us? Why didn't he just let us take on the consequence of our sins and burn in hell forever? Why? Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 tells us this. This was a, a mind-boggling truth when I really thought about it, that God didn't spare the angels. Why didn't he spare them? Are we better than angels? Is there something more appealing about man that isn't appealing about angelic beings? Can you answer that from Scripture? You can't. We aren't better than angels, ladies and gentlemen, in any way, shape, or form. And listen to this. God didn't have to save you. You remember that. All you deserved was the wrath of God. All I deserved was the wrath of God. His character wouldn't, cha- wouldn't have changed if he didn't save us. God would have remained all-loving and all-powerful and omnipotent even if he didn't spare us. But that wasn't the case. Oh, his great love. Oh, his great love for us. That's why he saved us. If you are still in Romans 5, look at what Paul tells us in verse 8. He says, but God shows his love, manifests his love, demonstrates his love for us in in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John chapter 3, verse 16, the most well-known passage in all all the world. For God so loved the world. For God in this manner loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 15, 13, greater love has no, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Christ did that for his disciples. 1 John 3, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us 
And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so why the atonement? Why the death of Christ? Why did God send him? Well, because of God's great love for us. And the reason I I drew your attention to the love of God first before we discuss the application of this work of Christ is because I know that when we're reminded of this great love, in my opinion, the application is extremely clear. It's extremely clear. God has demonstrated to us a type of love that is foreign to us and will always be foreign to man. The only worthy response is to love him in return, isn't it? Believer, oh, that this great doctrine of atonement would drive you to love God more. Would it drive you to constantly seek to obey the Lord Jesus Christ and his teachings? Would it cause you to share his glorious gospel more? Would it cause you to have a holy anger when his name is being spoken evil against? Would it cause you to be a brighter beacon for his glory? Would the love of God drive you to your knees? Would it drive you to his word? Would it drive you to his people? Every day, because of the love of God, will we seek to place him first in all things. As we close, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might not, might not live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Oh, that love of Christ, similar to the Apostle Paul, would it drive us to do what we do for the Lord? Oh, that the great love of God would control us. That the great love of Christ, which was proven when he came down to earth and and was sacrificed on our, our behalf, would that great love demonstrate it for us? Would that cause us now and for the rest of our lives to live for him? Earlier, I said to you that this great doctrine of the atonement of Christ should drive us to our knees. Well, I meant it. And I would ask now, if you are able to do so, would you get on your knees with me as we close in prayer? Let's thank God for this wonderful truth. Lord, with this truth, never, never, ever become dull to our ears. Lord, I must confess, oftentimes it is in my own life. Lord, would you rid me of that? Would you rid me of that? Would you rid the believers in this room of that? So often we hear Christ has died for us. Oh, will we remember it, Lord? Will we remember what drew him to that cross? It was his love for us. Lord, and would that, would that compel us 
to love him with every fabric of our being. Lord, this is our prayer. Help us, God. Help our hearts to cherish this truth more, to cherish the atonement of Jesus Christ more. Lord, it's, it's, it's because of him, because of his atonement that we can pray, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.